And now I'm recording. We are recording. So, yes, we are recording. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gabe, about uh, Roe versus Wade. That must be a fucking nightmare. I I think that it's going to get significantly worse. I think that people are going to feel the effects of Trump for literally decades. Yeah. I think that, uh, the, I mean, the next thing they already said they're going to look at is same-sex marriage. Yeah, some of them have said that, while others have said, no, that's not going to happen, but, well, you open the door now. Yeah. Even if it doesn't happen so. now, when, when that judge kicks the bucket and maybe another, you know, right-wing nut gets a seat, then it will be maybe something totally different then. Who knows? I mean, it, that's so scary. It's going to be an insane path to get it because you need a, a minimum. You need to control both the House and the Senate because the only way that we can like completely undo what they did is codify it as law across at the federal level. And in order for that, you need to have a 60% majority for both, which like the Dems haven't had since like Clinton. Mm. No, exactly. Maybe Obama. Yeah, and, think, all the but, and all the gerrymandering has been uh, making it so that the Republicans oh, get yeah. better and better control over the few states, well, the few states, the few population areas that they actually control. So they want to write in stone that, that they're the people. I just don't understand how, like, Republicans don't realize that things like abortion and universal health care aren't weird. We're the weird ones because we don't have that. Like, every country pretty much has like abortion laws. Mexico almost went into a damn near meltdown when Peña Nieto had suggested of reversing it. They started literally firebombing his house. And then he was like, okay, we're not going to do it. And I'm like, yeah, that's what you do to politicians <laughs> when they suggest dumb shit. You make sure that they know. What I heard is like, realistically, what Americans need to do is, you know, think really fucking local, like changing of uh, state constitutions. And get really into who gets, you know, district attorney races and sheriffs. That's going to be really fucking important now because it all depends on who, because it's going to be super unpopular. It's already like nationwide abortion at the national level. Yeah. It's something like over 70% of the United States did not want Roe v. Wade touched. No, of course not. Because I mean, every fucking woman during their lifetime will have to deal with that question. I mean, Christian right-wingers don't want to think about that every fucking couple has have to deal with this sometime during their lifetime it's healthcare. yeah <laughs> forced pregnancy is something that is just like that's some dark ages shit yeah that's what religious i mean zealotry gets you it's not gonna stop it it's just gonna prevent safe abortions <laughs> that's the only difference thankfully that's the only thing that gives me some hope is that this came like 10 years too late i mean the abortion pills now are so easy to use you just take them you don't have to have supervision oh yeah I've, I've heard of that it's still like fucking ruins your body for like a few days yeah yeah but. it's no picnic but i mean just them having to do this has come too late because what they want to do is of course uh, make everyone helping an abortion you know the medical providers and the doctors mm -hmm. and all that stuff they want to make them the the bad guys but they're yeah. not going to be able to do that because the pro-life movement right now says we don't want to uh, prosecute mothers. 
because that's going to be like then you're like in a handmaid's tale territory they said that they didn't want to prosecute they don't want it right now the mainstream movement pro-life movement does not want that but when people are just like i'm gonna fucking order pills from mexico or pills from europe and of course a lot of activists are going to help out like fucking hell with those kind of things and then maybe they can go after the activists but if the activists are outside of the nation if europe just basically says up. Oh, We'll, we'll, we'll provide this to American women so that we're outside of your jurisdiction. <laughs> well, it's kind of just, uh, I mean, we're inching towards Handmaid's Tale already. And that's the thing. I mean, what the anti-abortion movement wants is one thing. But I get really nervous about all these politicians that are like really, you know, crazy people getting uh, elected. I oh, mean, yeah. like really loony people. I mean, the Republicans have not been so stringent and about... Like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Exactly. I mean... QAnon, I mean, crazy people. And those people might actually get into the state level and they might not care what the mainstream you know, pro-life movement thinks. And they go, I'm th- I yeah, think no. this is terrible. So we're going to start prosecuting uh, pregnant women instead. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden you get a split within the movement. Those who think that's actually something that they want to do and what they don't want to do. Because I think they don't want to do it mostly because of the optics. Because they understand that it'll be like the end of the the pro-life movement, it'll become really fringe. And all of a sudden, 20 years later, the abortion's back on the on a federal level, back on the books. So they, they don't want to do that right now. But I don't know if in their hearts, they don't want to, you know, think that the pregnant women are actually doing something criminal. If they believe in the, in the sanctity of life before birth, then why wouldn't you think that the mother would also be at fault legally? Yeah. Such a cheery subject. Well, the struggle's real. Hundred uh, percent. Anyway, let's talk about D and D. Let's talk about D and D, Gabe. <laughs> well, welcome, all listeners. Where Full Metal RPG presents Fortune Seekers and Grave Robbers. I'm Malcolm, and I'm here with my good friend Gabe. Hello. I think that after all that talk about Roe being stricken down, let's shift to something. At least somewhat more pleasant. Positive. <laughs> more positive, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we should... So you want to you, you wanna adopt a 32-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> I think you are emancipated already. Do you want God, me to... Just, <laughs> I need a real wizard to just transport me to Greyhawk or something. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather Honestly, fight Honestly, just Ravenloft. Ravenloft would probably be nicer I'd rather fight honest. Strahd. <laughs> I'd rather fight fucking Strahd, dude. Something. <laughs> Oh, man. We figured during this episode, we'll concentrate on one specific setting, book. It's multiple books, though, but one setting, one dungeon that has been a cornerstone for many players' tables. We're talking about the mega dungeon called Stonehell Dungeon, created by Michael Curtis. I was actually going to say, I... I don't know if I asked you when we decided on this. Have you ran it or no? I've only read the opening chapters. I have oh, looked at so it good. many times. We're going to talk about it, how it's set up. But I love, we can begin just saying, I love how terse it is. I love mm-hmm. those kind of dungeons when you get like basically every room is a two line description with a lot of content, but basically just not even full sentences. <laughs> yes. I love that. It is good classic D&D goodness. Uh, there are a few things I'd like to address before someone decides to buy it, which I think you can get this on Lulu. Yeah. Um, but overall, 
it is, in my opinion, the most fun I've had with a Mega Dungeon. And I've played a number of Mega Dungeons. Being brutally honest, I've only ever finished one Mega Dungeon in OSR because they are quite a bit of work. Yeah. And the one I decided on after debating for a bit was uh, Stonehell. Pretty much uh, me and some buddies decided to run it over lockdown. I'll talk more about that. But uh, yes, I I love Stonehell. I, I got really excited when we decided that we were going to talk about this because I have experiences with it. Um, like I said, I did even finish it. So yeah, I think I can give a good honest review on it. If Lulu, the print-on-demand site, is to be believed, the book was published in 2009. It's uh, an old one. It's an old one, and it's a good one. Michael Curtis, we can just briefly discuss him. He wrote this mega dungeon, and he also has later become one of the main creators at Goodman Games and doing a lot of work on their main uh, OSR title, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. He also did the Dungeon Alphabet, I believe was like his first job there. And then since then, he's doing a lot of DCC work. And the biggest stuff he's released or the largest releases are the Chain Coffin and the first box set that explained the Lankmar setting. DCC now has a license to produce Lankmar material for the Fritz Leiber books. That's pretty sick. Fafford and the Grey Mouser. If you look at the Goodman Games huge library of books, you'll probably find his name <laughs> on a lot of their titles. That's impressive. Yeah, they have all the content currently on Lulu. I own... Uh, Part one and two, and then I have the two supplements. Um, so yeah, shall I yeah, exactly. describe it? Yeah, do that. I can just say that two books, book one contains the first four levels, five levels? Five. It's 10 total. 10 it's total. something like 1,700 rooms or something like that. And there's two uh, supplements that just flesh out some things above ground and gives you an extra sub-level, I believe. But Gabe, come on. Tell us all about the book. Okay, so for those that don't know... What a Mega Dungeon is, is if you're into video games, it's like basically what a roguelike is. You kick down a door, you get the loot, you beat up the monster. Is there plot? Probably. But, you know, this is mostly about rolling dice and just classic dungeon crawling. But uh, this one does have a story. If you are into the style of storytelling where there is a story, but a lot of it needs to kind of be uncovered, similar to something like Dark Souls for any fans like that, that's kind of how the story is. Um, and for those that just don't play video games, uh, what I mean by that is the story is told to the players over time. You are not given a giant chunk of exposition. There is a giant chunk of exposition that the DM is given. You get the entire story on how um, Stonehell was made. Briefly put, it's a prison that was uh, constructed in a box canyon. It grew to become a place where the king would throw his detractors and anyone he didn't like into this prison. And over time, you know, you can only throw so many people into one place before the shift of power happens. And that's pretty much what happened is a lot of the prisoners pretty much, you know, lost it and they decided we're going to take this back. So instead of expanding and building it, you know, outward like a tower, they basically bored down and it's largely hinted that they uh, bored into mysterious things, which I actually will not cover in case anyone would like to run this or have their dm run it i'm going to try to run it as spoiler free as possible but i'll i'll give some spoiler warnings i think if we if we get near it so looking at the book it comes in a standard uh what is this i think it's like eight and a half by eleven yeah regular u.s letter sized book it is soft cover this thing has been thrown in my back i think countless times or sorry backpack and it's still holding up so print quality from lulu is good on it but uh just reading the back 
Uh, Beware all who enter these benighted halls of stone. Within lies no solace, nor any comforts of home. Toiling for our crimes, we must dig where we dwell with no freedom or mercy in our vast stony hell. And it is the inscription or the entrance of the Stonehill dungeon. Hopping right into this, uh, I really like this because the stat blocks and the balance for everything is built for Labyrinth Lord. Which, if you guys do not remember, that is my preferred way to play. I am a Moldvay basic fan, and Labyrinth Lord is a Moldvay derivative. So, as a DM, you're gonna get about like 10 pages of exposition on how it was constructed, the full story of it. Um, it's very interesting. I personally love the lore of this thing. Uh, it's basically a king's project that unfortunately took a dark turn. You will experience as a player everything from kobolds to ghosts to like lizard men to very extraterrestrial style things. You get a good spread of content. It reminds me a lot of the varied things that you would see and come across in Temple of Elemental Evil across like the different planes and stuff when you would go through. As much as I love the entire dungeon, I think I'm still a sucker for the first level. So going into how the levels work, there are 10 levels, so 10 floors. However, each level is going to be split into four parts, kind of quadrants, and that is how they are assigned. When you run the game, Think of your biggest like Chessex grid map or like, you know, giant piece of grid paper if you use paper. That is about one quadrant to put things to scale. Um, in fact, I think the Chessex map that I have, which is the biggest one they have, I don't even think that fully encompasses uh, one quadrant. So it's huge. <laughs> Each one will be labeled as like level 1A level 1B, level 1C, and they all connect. There are really cool, interesting things like uh, staircases that'll go from like a level one to level three or holes that go from like level two to level four. Um, I think there's even a portal in level two that like takes you to level nine. Granted, the deeper you get uh, and the more you descend into the stone hill, the harder it gets. So there's all kinds of tricks and traps in this, uh, this lovely little dungeon that I had the pleasure of running. I think it's really cool because, like you said, there are shortcuts between the dungeon levels, but generally every four quadrants has one entrance to every other quadrant. So they are quite... Uh, uh, they're all they're all interconnected. They are interconnected, but they're also their own things. So you can definitely mine the dungeon if you love a specific quadrant. You can just take that out and make your own little dungeon out of that. So the utility is great there. That way it, it's somewhat easy for the referee to use and to incorporate into their game because the interconnectivity is quite fixed. So you know basically okay now i need to read up over here because now they're really getting close to the yeah. entrance into the next quadrant uh the way the book is formatted is also great because every mm -hmm. uh, like i said earlier it's very terse all the room descriptions so every quadrant gets first a spread that explains the background and the basic theme of every quadrant because every quadrant has its own theme and then the next spread is the quadrant and its random table and its room descriptions so every quadrant is four pages basically and every level has its own uh, description that basically gives you a, a larger sense of what all the four quadrants have its own collective theme and and it gives a the referee some kind of uh, short descriptions of the content yeah, and that's something that I really enjoy is the descriptions or like we were saying earlier, there are enough to give your party kind of inspiration to kind of like play with it. What I mean by that is 
I'm just picking a random thing. Ancient parlor. Door is barred from the outside. Decayed furnishings. Torn wall hangings. Thick dust. Crystal statue in the southwest corner. The statue is an animate crystal statue that attacks anyone attempting to enter the area. There's a lot you can do as a DM yeah. to kind of take those elements and then build on it and make a creepy room. Just reading that off the get-go, I'm kind of picturing like, you know, you're in this dirty, grimy, dank dungeon and um, like some of the descriptors that will tell you like the whole dungeon smells like body odor and offal and just like sour air and whatnot. I would put this thing as like it's torn furnishings and everything and there's a crystal statue. Maybe it's like some old random nobles parlor, mm. you know, you can twist with that and kind of go with that angle or maybe you know when they enter they hear a humming on the crystal statue like the descriptions are short enough but they're so compact and so flavorful because they're flavorful and that you can do a lot with that and i really appreciate that in this dungeon like you were saying he packs on on one single page close to 34 room descriptions because if you've ever looked at anything like patrick stewart or his uh, previous collaborator they would kind of do the thing where it would be a mini map on one page with like a random table underneath and then all the room descriptions. It's very the OSR forward thinking where you have mm. everything on, like you had mentioned, across two pages. Yeah, the control uh, panel way of thinking. Yeah. Control panel. Curtis brings it up in the introduction of the book. He talks about the one page dungeon scene where uh, a few bloggers started thinking like, okay, let's do one page dungeons, which basically is one spread dungeons. <laughs> <laughs> and he expands it on every quadrant gets four pages. I also want to read a room. Old animal pen, rusted cages, water troughs, broken feed bins, faint smell of fur and hide, kobolds, eight, with litters of food, four days worth for 12 people, casks of black wine, black wine, yeah, I love it, four crossbow corals. The kobolds have come to resupply the goblins and are waiting to meet them. The goblins currently owe them 50 gold pieces for supplies. Kobolds have 46 copper pieces each. So that's all it says. Two lines, but that's so much content right there. You didn't get their motivation, you, how to interact with the kobolds just like that. You know that the goblins are owing them a lot of money. A lot of money. Oh, yeah. The, the best part is that the kobolds in Stonehill, I believe they occupy the second or third floor, but there's like a kobold city and you can go about it a number of ways. I believe it's supposed to be kind of friendly, but also like kind of sketchy. And when I ran it, um, basically I had the opportunity to run it over lockdown. Um, so I ran this in uh, the worst year of all time, <laughs> 2020. Um, and me and some friends were like, man, I wish that we could uh, play like a mega dungeon because all of us had gotten furloughed or were laid off. So we were like, screw it. Let's just do this thing. We're all stuck at home. We're not leaving. Let's just do a mega dungeon and just grind out something big. So we ultimately decided on Stonehill. The thing that I did for that group is when they finally reached that point, there was about five of us. And I flavored it to where the kobold encampment that is there, I run it like a kind of like a tin shed ramshackle town that's like super sketchy. There's a lot of organized crime in it. Um, so I kind of ran it. If you imagine like the slums in Blade Runner, where yeah. they're like their own like communes and like you can get things that you really need, but things that you don't really need are like really cheap. <laughs> so like when they were in there, they were like, we need rations. We need like clean water. And I was like, cool. 300%. Each one of those is going to, yeah. How's 50 gold sound? <laughs> and they're like, wow, that's awful. But how much for like this really big sword? And I'm like, yeah, like 20. 
<laughs> so they're like, I don't need that. And I'm like, yeah, that's how they run this town. So he definitely leaves it open to run a lot of things however you want because of descriptions like that. And I, I really like that because I'm of the belief that you should give the player enough to where you get your vision across, but you're not overloading them with your own back lore. Going back to the beginning of the book, I like that that is how he did this. He has his lore and he goes off on all of it at the beginning. It's not filling up pages of room descriptions and stuff. He's just giving you enough to where I decided, you know what, I don't really like the traditional way, so I'm just going to make it to where, you know, a bunch of kobolds and some slums, and they're like, hey, how you doing? You know, that kind of thing. I love that too, because I play, well, people do it differently, of course, and there's lots of ways to do it, but I often play so-called monster species and races. I do play them as highly dysfunctional societies. Oh, yeah. Of course, there's always going to be people that are nice, but I don't see someone being lawful evil or chaotic evil even being, you can't be a nice person. You're just like, you just have a more egocentric than others, but you're definitely, especially in dungeons, very pragmatic. Things got to work. And because all the old school versions of D&D have the reaction role, then it becomes a different kind of meeting. So I still have people who are very favorable to you, but they like to eat people's brains. So how are you going to react with that? Like the mind flayer who actually is, you know, very, oh, well, I'll, I'll work with you guys. No problem. I'm in a very dire situation myself, so I'll definitely help you and be straight up with it. I haven't played mind flayers because I haven't had characters at high level, but, but, you know, I would have them be straightforward. Maybe they didn't even lie to the player, but they want to do things that the players, maybe not the characters, but the players themselves would find horrible. So there's a lot of... The content there. So like you say, Mega Dungeons have it that when you go very deep, it becomes very impractical to get back to town. So you need yes. to have societies within the dungeon, which often means monster cities. The classic one in, for everyone who's played D&D is, you know, the Drow city. The Drow are there. They have a society. They have food. They have weapons. They have magical components. If you play with those kind of rules, that exists there. And if you just, you know, treat them right, you can deal with them. But that's the fun thing is that these people are often, if not individual level, at least at a societal level, they're often very uh, dangerous. <laughs> so what are you going to do about that? What are they doing to other factions in the dungeon? You mentioning harder and harder to get back to town. So I committed... I committed a crime <laughs> against OSR, and I'm ready for your judgment. I implemented something that my players were kind of hinting that they wanted to get and i am of the dm philosophy that you are there to have fun fun yeah. and if players want something and they think that it would make their experience more fun you better do, it. do it yeah i implemented portals of town scroll oh wow that Sorry, is like scrolls of town portal. Yeah. But I made them incredibly hard to get. Yeah, yeah. And I hid them in the dungeon. That's totally fine. I figured like if they had them from the beginning, like, oh, we're no. getting short on rations. Let's go home. Boop. <laughs> no, no, no. I would do one per quadrant. Okay. And it would be hidden. And I think that that is fair. That's again, very fair. You, That's very you fair. You have the spreads in front of you. Yeah. If you look, each quadrant is... I think the only way to describe it is fucking huge. <laughs> They're huge. I mean, this one that I'm looking at is almost 40 rooms, and that's one quadrant. If your party's like, 
Bob and and Joe are like super low health, and then the other two of us we're we're gonna be over encumbered. We need to get back. Let's go start kicking doors to try to find a scroll of town portal. Um, you know, you can't do that. It, it's gonna be difficult. Yeah, exactly. I would think that would be definitely something to you know, learn by doing. You don't maybe want a TPK the first time they realize they went too deep. Maybe they should abandon a lot of treasure to not become over-encumbered and see how they get back. But I get that. It's late in the evening. They're actually quite far down. Getting home would be its own entire session. Oh, yeah. We, we don't have time for that. Those kind of, you know, shortcuts are definitely great. When I play, like I told everyone last time, I play Halls of Ardenval, a mega dungeon, like the biggest one that's ever been created. Uh, it's much more wordy than Stone of Dungeon, which I think is uh, to its detriment, but it is what it is. There is a huge, also, also, I'm saying things in Swedish, there are factions in that dungeon, and one of the factions is basically one guy. And it being AD&D, then you have Archmages. So you have like level 19 fucking mages in that dungeon. Oh my God, <laughs> just bodying people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he runs around, and this is not much of a spoiler for people. Uh, he runs around with flying robots, basically, that he talks to. So you negotiate with him. And one of the things he provides is teleportation. So if you happen upon one of his automatons in the dungeon, which is randomly, I could, of course, you know, slide it in if, I, if it needed to be, but it's mostly random. His automatons are everywhere, basically. <laughs> so the chance of meeting him and you can also, he has other things to do. He shouldn't be, you know, controlling automatons all the time. But if you do say something to an automaton, it says so in the book, he is very agreeable, but he wants things from the people, from the players, things that the players long-term shouldn't really, they should think about giving in to him. So my players have met him once now and they're like, Ooh. oh my God, why is that? that <laughs> why is that, you know, crackly, you know, speaking over, uh, I did like, it was like a, some kind of calm radio, crackle, crackle, hello, hello, who's there, who's there? So I, I play him like oh, a, a super awesome. nice guy, but he's asking for things that they get really uncomfortable with. So that dungeon has incorporated that kind of mechanic. If people need to get out, there is, within the text of the book, ways to do it. Having factions in a game and players having to deal with the faction and actually... I wouldn't say befriending, but, you know, going into almost contracts with these factions and having to deal with the outcomes from those agreements they've made and things they had to basically had to agree with under duress <laughs> and having to deal with that. I love those kind of things. That's so dope. I, I need to pick that up still. Yes. But there's a lot of interactions similar to that. To kind of give... <laughs> I have two great stories about, about some factions, but I, I won't name them. To begin with, Stonehell doesn't start at the dungeon you probably have like four sessions before you even reach the actual stone hell it starts off in a canyon being from the wonderful state of arizona i described it very deserty very kind of just like um if anybody remembers dark sun i just flavored it to where it was like just this wasteland of just like awful desert and cacti and all of that because that's how i wanted to flavor it but I started off, um, out of all of my players, I only had one that had never played OSR, didn't really understand, um, you know, the differences or anything. He was the first casualty within the first five minutes. <laughs> Classic. Um, his death was great. Um, RIP, uh, but it was pretty much the five of us. He started off and he went up to a door, opened the door, immediately uh, got brained 
by a orc with a large club. Just boop, right on the dome. Dragged his body in, closed the door. He was dead. He had two health and he got hit for three. And immediately he was like, what the hell happened? And I'm like, I don't know. You didn't check for anything. You just kind of went up to someone's house, opened a door, and then boom, you're dead. Starting off great. But uh, yeah, so the outside is kind of, it reminds me of a barracks that has gone to waste and like bandits have taken it over. There's uh, like ramparts. There is like kind of the inner workings of like a large gate uh, that you can get into. There's some orc stuff. There are some like spooky ghost stuff on the outside, but it's a it's a fun little crawl in the beginning. There, The canyon is split into east and west parts. It's very reminiscent of the Caves of Chaos in... Uh keep yes. in the borderlands that's what you see immediately when you see the first time oh this is i know where this Curtis yeah. got inspiration for this i love the wall that's all broken down that was supposed to you know wall off the canyon but it's fallen apart the overland part of the dungeon is great it's fun it presents itself um let, let me open this i think some of the encounters in the beginning are just like a black bear kobolds goblins but then the best part is that as you really start to kind of look at the surface level aspects of this canyon and kind of the entrance, I think what they refer to as the gates of hell, when you start to kind of see the outside of this prison and, you know, kind of like the features and how it's been built into this canyon and how it's crumbling and it's in ruins and there's goblins and stuff, you start to see things that make your players a little uneasy. Like I put in like dark markings and, you know, there's signs that there's not really much order here this isn't just your average like bandit hideout it's fun to see your players go from fighting things like black bears and kobolds and goblins and then you know within a layer they're dealing with like wraiths and sturges and things and it just quickly yeah it gets really just quickly gets bad (laughs) but uh yeah so like going in in line with how we've been giving brief descriptions so this is in the canyon east the mountain lion den Dear carcasses, wind-blown debris, a mountain lion has settled into the cave, and the great cat spends much of his time hunting, and there is only a 25% chance that it will be home when the adventurers arrive to explore the cave. The Labyrinth Lord might wish to dispense with the role altogether in the case of low-level adventurers. I did not. No. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) No mercy at my table. As the mountain lion can be a formidable foe for beginning PCs. He's being very nice there. Yeah, exactly. Mountain lions, bears, they're fearsome animals. And it's also fun because it means that there's actual danger in the overland for many levels to come. I mean, even if they're like third or fourth level, it won't be, depending how many they become, of course. If they're like 15 people, they should scare away a bear or a mountain lion because they're making so much racket. But, you know, if it does become a fight, it's still not an easy thing to deal with. And some people might get killed. I mean, at least the men at arms or the women at arms. Yeah, I believe also the mountain lion is in the wandering monsters table, so it's more likely you'll meet it there. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. I liked running the box canyon. Um, it's a lot of walking because <laughs> um, it is wide. It's more rectangular shaped uh, in the way that it's presented. There, it's only two quadrants. You have west and east, but it's fun. There's cool stuff, and like players can build up some levels before they hop right in, which uh, you know is important. Or, you know, have a lot of things to avoid, actually. They poke around. Oh, wow. And I usually tell the players, of course, that the, the overland is always often very varied. But the levels of a dungeon, that I'm very up forth with, of course. If they're not familiar with the dungeon format in old school d and I tell them that the levels of a dungeon gets more and more dangerous the further down you go. 
so they get some kind of sense of like, okay, the first level should be something that we could interact with. But of course, they start dying even there. So they, they understand quickly that even that's dangerous. But the further down you go, the, the more dangerous it'll become. So they have some kind of sense of like, when are we ready to go down a level? And it, it's really cool too how it's presented um, in a way like, you know, why does this get more dangerous the deeper we go? And the reasoning that the author gives is that people have come here to kind of loot because they've heard that, oh, it's an old place, it's dangerous, but there's stuff. Um, there's not much treasure. I mean, there are like... Uh, denizens here but it's mostly like either other people that are there for the same reason you are or bandits or like kobolds and stuff and it's because these are the most looted places like no one really wants to go deeper than like level two or three mm. um, so by the time you get to like level eight like that's where all the good shit is because no one wants to go down there so it's pretty cool how he kind of incorporated that little balance plot hole potentially by just being like oh yeah it's because it's because no one wants to go down there that is really cool because that really drives the players in their search for gold, which will give them XP most likely. That's when they really need to, oh, okay, maybe there are better stuff further below, and especially if they start meeting NPCs. If you have a town, Stonehill doesn't have a town provided, so you're going to have to build that yourself. It gives you a natural place to meet other adventuring partner NPCs, and they might say flat out, we never go past level three. If none of the adventures in this town are going down to levels five plus, then there's probably a lot of loot there. Definitely. The first dungeon, the first third party book that was created, which was a dungeon, is called Palace of the Vampire Queen. I think so. Palace of the Vampire Queen. And that one is really funny. I think there's a lot of room descriptions there that are, I mean, it just basically says this room has three ogres but they're also somewhat descriptive of what the ogres are doing. And it's a little of a funhouse dungeon, meaning that there's not much movement in the dungeon. The placement of the different uh, rooms and denizens of the dungeon are quite haphazard and random. It's a little funny that way. I always love it because it's so brief. It's crazy brief. Uh, I'm going to yeah. see. I'm going to find my favorite room of all time. I have it here. Oh, dang. The artist that did the art for that has prints of the original artwork. I may or may not have to snag one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for being the first published adventure and also third-party product, it's really cool. Uh, I believe it's, that, that it's the TSR... It's very 60s looking. <laughs> TSR actually took it into their catalog for a while and sold it because TSR in the beginning didn't believe that published adventures were something the customers would want. They thought, why would you buy a, a ready-made adventure? Wouldn't the DM want to create it themselves? But that's not what happened. <laughs> the market was much different. Let's see. Uh, there's two rooms here from uh, Palace of the Vampire Queen. One is room 13. Here, here are the contents of the room. Four ogres, five dwarf children. And it gives the hit points of these characters. It just says, kitchen. Ogres are slaughtering children to make blood pudding. Three drained bodies. Other five are still living. Oh, <laughs> so, so, so so that's brutal brutal so brutal but that wasn't the one i was looking for that's just one, the one i found let's see uh oh yeah room 18 on level one the contents is 10 house cats one madman that's all it says <laughs> so funny 10 house cats one madman it's kind of funny how the design for it is just so blocky <laughs> yeah room 11 Five dwarf children, 
children are in cage. So that's room 11. And then room 13 is the four ogres, five dwarf children. So the, they most likely will go to 11 first and maybe they'll hear something from the children. So they get a heads up of what's going to happen. Yeah, but that's not stated. That's you as the referee it needs to like, you know, infer all this, which I love. It takes a lot of work off the writer, but it's still so flavorful that it becomes your idea. You're the one who thought, oh, the children in the room 11 will inform the players about what's happening in room 13, or they won't, depending on what you want. But that's what, what I love about, you know, those terse uh, dungeon descriptions. It's nowhere that brief in uh, Stone of Dungeon, but it's trying to adhere to the one-page dungeon by having 30 rooms and all those room descriptions will fit on one spread. You know, what's funny too is like there's so many rooms that are just empty, empty, empty. And it's just like literally empty rooms. <laughs> oh, you mean in a palace uh, or, or in yeah. the palace vampire queen? Yeah, there are a lot of empty rooms. One thing I also wanted to say is that if you are struggling as a player, if you think the dungeons are too brief and you have nothing you can come up with, the original Dungeon Master's Guide has a lot of tables to... Uh, I think it's called Dungeon... It's basically just like room generation. Yeah, room generation. It's called... I gotta say it. I'm sorry. Okay, this is me, my nerdiness. If I don't say the what the term is, I feel like I failed the OSR scene because <laughs> everyone knows it. It's called... Uh, oh, goddamn. Osric doesn't call it that. They changed it. It just says Dungeon Contents, but it's called something specific. Oh, let me see if I can find the... The original DMG then. I'm trying to find a reprint of Palace of the Vampire Queen. It exists. Uh, you can buy it now. You can... Uh, oh, here it is. Oh, it just came out. They just reprinted it. They, they've reprinted it recently. I don't know if they have the real, you know, R-rated cover because there was some... I think, believe there were <laughs> bare breasts on the on the original oh, cover. No. So that there might be the new cover. But I think it's the same artist that did it, I believe. I found the name now. It's called Dungeon Dressings. So there are Dungeon tables dressings. in the appendix of the DMG that gives you all that kind of stuff. So if you want to have, you know, if you think the room is not giving you enough, use those tables to randomize even more contents. It could be like, you know, air currents. It could be smells. It could be uh, a cupboard, cushion, dais, desk, fireplace and wood, fireplace with mantle, uh, fountain, fresco, grindstone, hamper, hassock, hogshead, Idle, largish. <laughs> so you get a bunch of those kind of things in the tables. So you, uh, there are both in the original AD&D uh, DMG, but there's also Osric has similar tables. For example, if you need to, you know, you need something to uh, spur some imagination. But I think it's great to have that that all that air in the book. Oh yeah. That's my problem with Halls of Art and Vol is that it's overly descriptive. I get a sense that I need to adhere to some kind of logic. Okay, uh, there's an NPC here. It's a very brief description, but there's probably another description later on in the book that actually gives me the character's you know backstory, which will inform me. I feel like I need to keep up with the lore, and I feel like I might be doing it wrong. But if it's brief, then I know there is no more <laughs> explanations than what is in the book. You can just have fun. You can have fun with yeah. it. That's something, too, that I forgot to mention about Stonehell is the dungeon restocks. Every time the players leave the dungeon and go to a town, or in my case, I would do it every time they used a scroll of a town portal. Yeah, yeah. So you can't just, like, you know, bore your way in, come out, and then go immediately back to where you were. Like, the dungeon will restock. That adds a nice sense of balance as you can't just hammer away at it every time you leave you really need to think do we want to leave and come back is it worth it 
Is it not? The tables for dressing and all that in here are pretty great uh, in terms of like what players can find and stuff. Okay, I'm just going to randomly go to level 3D. The Hexperiment South. Features and outer hallways and random encounters and there's just so much stuff you can do with this and uh so many different ways that you can flavor each room and you know you will never play Stonehell the same way twice and i know that can be said for you know a lot of modules just inherently but really like the amount of things that you can generate and the amount of situations that players can find themselves by chance because of either a table roll or because of you know how they interpret certain vague things that you may describe differently each time like it's it really is a timeless and endless dungeon for $15 a book uh, <laughs> um it's fantastic i really appreciate how he has thought about all of those issues that have plagued mega dungeons before you know whether they're too big not as descriptive or they just don't seem to have a sense of direction that is pretty much fixed in this yeah, exactly. Dwimmer Mount, uh, James Maliseski, his Mega Dungeon took years to create, and I think he got burned out and it was released then by another party. I think that dungeon is fun to read, but it's also overly stocked. I mean, you, you, which you, one? Uh, Dwimmer Mount. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, um, that one is. Gillespie, right? Wait, he's, he's, he left that? No, no, Maliseski, uh, Dwimmer Mount, not, not Waro Deep. Dwarrow Deep is oh. Gillespie. Dwimmer Mount is uh, oh, Dwimmer Mount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James Melodeski, you... who was the creator of the Grognardia uh, blog, one of yeah. the most famous blogs in the OSR. I think uh, I got mixed up because you were talking about the new Gillespie. We, you and I were talking about that like a few days ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dwarrow Deep and Dwim Dwimmer Mount. <laughs> it's like maybe a little too... Uh, too uh... <laughs> yeah, of course, you were totally right. What I see here is that, of course, there is Dungeons Dressing yeah. in the book one. Are there monster tables too because the restock just says the monsters restock table um, is very easy it's just monster empty or treasure or both i think was like in the yeah in the table. so the way i would handle the restocks i would kind of keep an internal clock you know they've been gone for like three days or two days um i forgot actually what the book states um but i would basically just um recover that room because we played online in roll 20 and if they went back through that i would just re-roll the room is there something in here now or no? Is it still empty from when they left it? And I would restock it that way. Um, it would basically just, you know, put a big reset on previous places that they've been. Um, as for your actual table, um, I believe that uh, you roll for both like what the room contains and if the room contains one or the other thing, so treasure or monsters, you roll for the monsters and then you also roll for the treasure. Um, the, I think 1B is like the crypts yeah the quiet halls the crypts operate the exact same way so the way you roll the crypts is you roll to see what is inside the crypt like you had mentioned monsters or treasure and then once you roll within that then uh you have things like uh you know crypt residents one through six you know five and six it might be empty and then you roll again for the treasure there's a half, 50% uh, chance that it has no treasure. Or, you know, sometimes you'll get really boned and you'll get, um, you know, 2d6 skeletons and then 1d4 times 10 copper trinkets. So you do all of that work for basically <laughs> pennies, <laughs> yeah. which is funny. And just like, that's one of the things I love about OSR. You know, it's not always fair. No, exactly. <laughs> I was looking here. So the cool thing with, I think, with Stonehell, which I believe Curtis himself thinks it's kind of boring 
now because now he's in DCC and they try to give you so much bang for the buck immediately. But uh, Stonehill is super, super uh, trad. It is the real old school D&D monsters and, and such. So you, you get a really authentic old school experience at least. There are some new monsters, of course, but most of them are traditional. And it says here that you're supposed to use the monster table for the dungeon level in the Labyrinth Lord book. Oh, I rolled a restock. It just says monster here. And then you go to your Labyrinth Lord and you roll up what's in there, which probably means that if you do it that way, you would like to restock before the session starts because that kind of stuff really slows down play. If I wait a minute, yeah. give me 15 minutes. I need to check what's happened here. And then you start rolling a bunch of tables and treasure <laughs> let, and let stuff. Me, let me do my like 14 tables that I need to do. <laughs> but that is fun because then you're using monsters outside of what Curtis himself has added to the dungeon so you might actually get an entirely new type of monster that is traditional in the labyrinth lord but still and that's kind of fun because then you have to work on your feet maybe kind of like where did it come from why is that here all of a sudden it sparks uh, interest and joy for the referee to you know to make it work or if it's totally terrible and in- inconvenient you just ignore the result and just roll again but i think that <laughs> i love that that's why random tables are so so inspiring for me i love that all this this is what spurs improvisation. When it comes to mega dungeons like that, you mentioning improvisation is something that you really need. Like everyone loves a good like door kick dungeon where you go in, there's not really plot and all that. Like, yes, that is fun. But when you have players in something like Stonehill or Barrow Maze or Forbidden Caverns or even like what you just mentioned, the uh, uh, what was it? The palace of the vampire queen having that type of role play in situations is fun like some of my favorite memories of running stonehill are of the things that i never planned for or there's a point in stonehill when the players will come across kind of like a goblin barricade and it's like almost like an improv toll booth and they'll like run you down for gold and having two players who just inherently are very charismatic irl playing obnoxious just like (laughs) douchebags here i think i had said something like the goblins wanted you know one gold to pass which is like nothing and one of my players was like hell no that's too expensive (laughs) and i'm like all right there's like 10 of them and he's like i'll take them all (laughs) and i'm like 10 goblins you're gonna take them And he's like yeah it's fine it turned into like an hour-long rp session of these goblins elevated on this platform with these crude bows and arrows and like i described the arrows as being like huge like like tree branch crude arrows that would just ruin your entire day yeah and he's just like i'm not paying this one gold and they were just you know (laughs) goblins elevated barking down are you kidding us like we have the high ground we can kill you and then he's like no you won't do it i dare you and they get scared of course so yeah exactly the goblins also what's happening there's a (laughs) madman right here yeah we've never encountered this (laughs) (laughs) that's cool i know I, i love all that stuff uh, I've written about this, I think, on the Discord several times. That I've had entire sessions just be filled up with random encounters. Something totally randomized, and it took the entire session to conclude on that tangent. And it's yeah. so fun. You just feel like, oh, I rolled something fun. You feel a spur of inspiration. You start leaning into it. You introduce it to the player characters, and the players love it, and they start, you know bouncing off it and all of a sudden you realize oh my gosh we'll be doing this for the rest of this game session (laughs) and all that just by random chance it's it's fun i loved stonehell and it's making me